Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss I'm Peter Hart and I'm Gary Bain and together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm here with uh, the late Peter Hart because uh, it's a couple of days late because you got stuck in Sicily, Peter. I did, I did. I was, uh, how I suffered, Gary. Gary, yeah. my suffering from the... We saw your suffering all over Facebook and Twitter. It looked terrible. Yeah, thanks, Gary, for your sympathy and your thoughts and prayers. Always, Pete, always. Now, today we're continuing our long-running uh, story of the Fife and Fourfile Yeomanry. Fife de Fourfiles. And this time it's the fighting in the Low Countries, Pete. Yep, in, uh, in, in what year would that be? 1944. It would be 1944, Pete, because all the others were 1944. Yeah. So, um, basically, after the capture of Antwerp, the second Fife and Fourfile Yeomanry had a bit of a lull. Then came the opportunity as the Guards Armour Division established a, a viable bridgehead over the Albert Canal at Beeringen. And uh, on the 8th of September 1944, the 29th Armoured Brigade moved up. And that's, that's their brigade, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's not it's not a novelty now, is it? They're, they're, they're veterans, aren't they? Uh, after it, it, Just three months. Yeah, yeah. And, and as a result, the O groups under Colonel Alex Scott had become much more informal and often very brief, as Scott was confident that his officers knew what they were doing. And this is what Major Douglas Hatchison of A Squadron says. Scott was a shy man, inclined to be a bit silent, but he had a dry sense of humour and was very nice. I liked him, very straightforward. O groups were as short as possible. More often than not, a brief affair in a lager. Maybe he had to take people in turn, give instruction to one squadron, because the other squadron leader wasn't immediately available. We always had maps. Not bad. <laughs> Some places better than others, but perfectly adequate. So they, they, it's a, they, they don't need a big formal O group anymore. They know what they're going to do. Yeah, and they got used to a rotor of switching the lead regiment and squadron in the line of advance by 29th Armour. So okay. they're swirling around, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, just as within each squadron, the troops took it in turns to lead. Although sometimes, still Brownlee gave the impression he was still determined to lead whenever possible yeah, within that's a squadron. that's Lieutenant Lieutenant William Steel Brownlee, always known as Steel Brownlee. He's a bit of a hero of this whole series, isn't he? But I'm going to be Lance Corporal Roy Valance, who's in Steel Brownlee's four troop. And he says this, 
Driving, stopping and waiting. You have to bear in mind that it wasn't every day you, you, that you were the leading squadron or troop. You could just be following on those. You would stop and wait if for some reason they were held up. A lot of your time was spent just sitting and waiting, like the army today really, expecting at any minute to be told to go around the flank or through the leading troop or car carry on. All the time you were listening on the air to the regimental net. You could hear what was going on, so you had a good idea of what was likely to happen in the near future. A soldier's lot is waiting, expecting, hoping, dreading. Wow. Yeah, as you say, it's fairly similar today. Now, they were also thoroughly integrated with the infantry in sharp contrast to the situation during Operation Epsom. Both infantry and tank crews knew the value of each other and we're determined to keep as close as possible. And once more, you're going to tell us what Lance Corporal Roy Valance says. We very often carried the infantry. If we were not the leading squadron, we would certainly be carrying infantry. They would be all over the tank. We'd probably have a dozen or more clinging onto the top of the tank, which they were quite happy to do. It saved them from walking. They were very nice chaps. We had the same platoon time and time again, so we got to know them a bit. We didn't talk much about tanks, more about females. Yes, and we've got a mutual friend, Chris Carling, who says something along the lines of, uh, if you fall in, I'll march you down, save your walking. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the 9th of September, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Old Yeomanry crossed the Albert Canal and uh, relieved the Irish guards from the position they were holding in front of the village of Helkturn. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, now, there's quite a bit of fighting that day. B and C squadrons, supported by the 8th Rifle Brigade, they try and make further progress. Uh, and towards early evening, they're joined by the 1st Hereford, in some woods just to the west of, of the village. Uh, what was that village again? Uh, <laughs> Helkturen. <laughs> Helkturen. <laughs> I was on a different page, uh, listeners, so it was a bit of a trap I just played on him there. Uh, a company attack was put in by the Herefords uh, and to, to clear the eastern end of the village. And then on the 10th of September, the 2nd, 5th and 4th for Yomi take part in an attack on the village in conjunction with the Welsh Guards. What's the village? Uh, Helkturen, mate. Helkturen. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, go catch me out. I'm on the same page. <laughs> right, uh, so who's in the lead this time? Well, A Squadron are... And uh, they were supported by a company of the 1st Herefords, while C Squadron moved to flank the village from the right, attempting to cut the road between Hechtel and the town of Pia. Ooh. Now, as four troops advance across the fields, they become aware that they're not alone. Oh. <laughs> the field was riddled by a mixture of trenches and individual foxholes, and these were occupied by the 10th Parachute Regiment. Are they British, guys? Our Parachute Regiment, Pete. No, <laughs> no, they're the Germans. Now, Steele Brownlee remembered the moment of realisation well, and this is what Lieutenant William Steele Brownlee, 4 Troop A Squadron, says. There were a dozen Germans running, 800 yards, so I halted and was leaning out of the turret, giving orders to our gunner, Buchanan, when suddenly the tank was splattered with bullets. I ducked down sharpish. Only a few enemy had run, and it soon became obvious that we were in the middle of a large area of dug-in Germans, who were firing at us from all sides with small arms and panzerfausts. What to do? Certainly not sit still, either retire or keep moving and firing. I decided on the latter course. 
Well, you're doing all the work today, Pete. Yeah, yes, don't worry about me, Gary. Now, having swiftly assessed the situation, Steele Brownlee flew into action, and this is what he goes on to say. I gave the order that we sh- we would keep moving among the enemy positions. Never halt, run over the trenches, fire at all possible targets. They kept appearing and disappearing as we drove round and round, flat out. We shot them, crushed them, blew them out of their holes. But as soon as we passed, others popped up and let fly at us. I want to make clear that he mentions Panzerfaust, but if they were letting, if they hit them with a bit, I, I suspect not Panzerfaust myself, but whatever. Now, it's an exciting and dangerous operation with a very real risk of being brewed up by those Panzerfausts. Well, if they had, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, yeah, anyway. And you're going to be Trooper John Buchanan. Now, he's the gunner in Steel Brownlee's Sherman. The infantry were pulled back and we went herring round this field with our guns depressed, blasting into everything that moved. Every little hole we saw, we tried to put machine gun bullets in. That's where the co-driver came in Andy, because he could do the same. He was more or less at a level. Eventually, the paratroopers gave up. There was a lot of tanks in this field. Voller was in one of the tanks, and he was standing up. All the Germans were crowded round our tanks with their hands above their heads. There was some of our infantry in amongst them. Herding them, you might say. Yeah, it's a bit of an incident. I remember that from the book because uh, uh, Voller's actually shot by one of them. Uh, he's not killed; he's just wounded. Uh, now, uh, in all, they take three hundred and fifty prisoners. It's not bad, is it, Gary? No, not at all. Now, on eleventh of September, Pierre fell to the second five feet fifty four first as the Germans pulled back, uh, just as they were about to launch an attack. So, and Hector would fall the next day, and the regiment spend a week at Pierre. What are they doing? What are they doing? What do what do the regiment normally do in a rest period? Well. Seeing as there's uh, not uh, not a pub, I suppose they engaged in the usual maintenance activities and rested as best they could, ready for the next stage in the advance. Now, at this point, the household cavalry they they proved they're a worthwhile unit because uh, while they're at pier, while the 54 fires are at pier, they they uncover a gap in the German lines and uh, find and this is imp- important they find an undemolished bridge and unguarded bridge across the Meuse Escal Canal. Uh, these names crop up all the time in military history, don't they? Mers, Esco, and anyway, Esco, remember from the, uh, the, the Norfolks? And anyway, so what happens next? Well, the Irish guards have rushed forward to create and hold a bridgehead. This allowed a general move by the 11th Armoured Division, now back in 8th Corps, to the north to cross the canal, which appeared to offer the chance to free up the stall campaign before winter and the uh, glutinous nature of the South Holland mud slowed it to a complete halt. So uh, this is uh, where we get uh, the madness of Montgomery's latest genius plan. So the, the division would now be charged with Holt guarding the right flank of the Guards Armour Division and the rest of uh, the 30th Corps as they move forward in conjunction with a mass airdrop of the American 101 uh, Airborne Division in the Eindhoven-Vegel area, the American 82nd Airborne Division dropping in the Grave-Nijmegen area and the British 1st Airborne Division who were going to drop on Arnhem. How does this go? What's, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to do, Gary? Well, ultimately, the intention was to create new bridgeheads across both the Mars that's the, that's the Mars and the Rhine where they drew close to each other at Nijmegen and Arnhem respectively now would you call this a, a bold scheme what's it called well it's called and it's world famous I think Operation Market Garden and it was the brainchild of Montgomery who proposed thereby outflanking the German defences of the Siegfried line to secure the all important Rhine bridgehead before the Germans could amass sufficient forces to prevent it 
Well, that's pretty bold. Uh, I'd also call it, uh, and I, I, I think we accept this is other people's judgment more than ours in some ways, but it's an over-optimistic uh, gamble. What's it relying on? Well, a compliant German opposition. Are they compliant usually? Are the Germans? Germans? Yeah, yeah. They, they always do what you want them to do, yeah. don't they? Well, they do now. They're lovely now, of course. Now, nevertheless, Eisenhower, he agreed. And uh, you'll notice I've changed the word in there. Yeah. And uh, the oh, operation <laughs> and the operation began on the 17th of September. Now the result was disaster as the 30 Corps were unable to keep up with the ambitious requirements to advance some listen to this 65 <laughs> miles in 3 to 4 days in order to relieve the forward airborne troops. Yeah, the Germans managed to reorganise their defensive forces and they're just not to be underestimated. In, 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 they're not finished yet. Uh, what happens for the 11th Armoured Division? Well, the operations had a far more conventional aspect. On the 19th of September, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Army Yeomanry crossed the Meuse-Escale Canal and advanced to Hook. Now, next day, the advance continues across the Dutch border, and, and this is a, we're gonna, we're gonna do a lot about this. Uh, by very late on the evening of 20th of September, they reached the Zuid Willems, uh, Willem, Willems Canal. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Zuid Willems. How would you pronounce it? Zuid Willems Canal at Sommeren. Now, here, the bridge across to the village of Aston was blown up just as a strong fighting patrol of 1st Herefords arrived on the scene. That's hard luck, isn't it? So they have a bit of a recce, right, left, looking along the canal bank. What are they looking for? Well, an alternative crossing. But do they find one? No, no. So it's, who's, who's, whose job is it then? Well, well it, <laughs> it then becomes a job for the infantry and the Royal Engineers working in tandem. So... At 1930, on the 21st of September, the Herefords force a crossing of the canal. Uh, two companies use assault boats and a third company follows on. They rush, they rush across the lock gates, which had not been destroyed. Um, there's quite a lot of opposition, but they managed to establish a small bridgehead around the other side of the, the destroyed bridge. Uh, and they're facing the village of Aston. It's just a bit further forward. Uh, what happens then? What do the Germans do? Well, uh, what do the Germans always do? Strong German counterattacks followed almost immediately with concerted efforts to infiltrate the Hereford's defensive positions. Now, it's then the Royal Engineers, the Sappers, their turn to shine. Uh, well, shine. Uh, they've got some dangerous hard work. They move across and begin erecting one of their invaluable, inv these are invaluable, Class 40 Bailey Bridges. Um, uh, they've got to get that across. And this is, it must have been incredibly fraught, wouldn't it? Because they're, they're under harassing mortar fire, uh, German counterattacks all the time, uh, battering against the Herefords. Well, they're flimsy defences. Uh, however, do they do it? Do they manage it? Do they, Gary? Do they? Do they? Well, yeah, I mean, they persevered. And by the morning of the 22nd of September, it was complete. The bridge was ready for the armour to move across. So who's given the task? I can guess. Well, a squadron. After a preliminary barrage by the gunners, they would charge sort of cavalry style <laughs> across the bridge, smash through the German defences, penetrate the village of Aston, which lay about a mile further back, and then deploy to cover all routes into the village to prevent any German reinforcements getting through. 
Now, uh, for once, Steel Brown is not in front. It's Lieutenant Don Bully and one troop would lead the way. They would be followed by Lieutenant Steel Brownlee with four troop, then Major Hutchison with A Squadron Headquarters and uh, an armoured car from the Recce Troop. Uh, they, 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 they'd be behind one troop. Uh, and finally, three troop uh, under Lieutenant Sampson. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty desperate undertaking, isn't it? Yeah, and all of the tanks were ordered to go flat out, deploying all armaments to maximum effect to try and shock and awe the German defenders. Now, contrary to usual practice, the officers would lead each troop from the front. Well, and that's, you're, a, that's a sign, isn't it? It is a sign. And you're going to tell us what Lieutenant William Steel Brownlee says. On this occasion, Don Bully proposed that troop leaders should go first, which meant that he would be leading the whole show, and this was agreed. He was a fair-haired, chung, cheerful young man of about my age who had a habit of singing to himself popular tunes like I'm just biding my time, that's the kind of guy I am. Yes. Yes. Well, and for, it's, it's sad, really, because I think that's a lovely personal touch. And as you'll hear, listeners, it's quite sad what happens to Don Bully. So there you now, go. B Squadron would follow A Squadron across, accompanied by a company of the 4th KSLI. That's the King Shropshire Light Infantry. Fine body of men, Gary. Now, however, it was evident that if anything went wrong, then there was a strong chance the whole of A Squadron would be mar- marooned. And once more, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant William Steel Brownlee says. It was a bold, if not desperate, plan. For if anything halted us beyond the bridge, the entire squadron would be sitting immobile in line ahead among the enemy defences. We would have been finished off at their leisure. If there were mines or anti-tank guns, if any of the leading tanks were knocked out and blocked the road, if anything unexpected turned up, we'd had it. This is why we were shocked. There's a shocking awe on their side. Yeah. Now, Lieutenant Don Bully Sherman was the first to cross, and it was evident immediately that the Germans were a lot closer than they'd thought. And once more, you're going to tell us what uh, Lieutenant William Steel Brownlee says. Don Bully shouted over the air, We're off! We motored over the bridge and through the little cluster of houses. Don had got about 50 yards beyond the last one when his tank disappeared in a cloud of smoke and flames. His second tank swerved to the right in an attempt to bypass over a field, but it stuck fast in the ditch. His third tank tried to do the same to the left, but also stuck. Me next. All I could see dead ahead was smoke and dust, but this was no place to hang about, so we just drove on. There was a tremendous crash, but the tank kept moving and emerged with a rush still on the road. Wow, and John Buchanan, remember, the gunner in the same tank, he picks up the story. What does he say, Gary? Bully was wounded by a bullet through the neck because he had his head stuck out of the turret. I can still hear them yet. Sunray is lying on the floor. He's bleeding badly. Can we get Niner, which was code for medical help? You couldn't. He just had to try and stop the blood. Hutchison says, now just hold on and we'll be there shortly. Just hold on, hold on. He couldn't stop the war to sort that one man out. His tank was in the ditch. The crew bailed out when Bully died. It was a silly thing to do. If they'd stayed in the tank, they'd have been all right. They were all shot down. It was full of Germans all around. Yeah, uh, Don Bully was, he, he, he was, um, later reports also, uh, he was fatally wounded while firing his revolver at the Germans who had clustered all around that Sherman. Um, uh, it, it, Bully's out of action, doesn't Now, as, as described earlier, the second tank was also in terrible trouble. Uh, they tried to dodge off, uh, uh, everything happens in a blur and, and you make a split second decision, decision, uh, and it could have fatal consequences. What happens to them? 
Well, hit by a Panzerfaust, Sergeant David McMahon and his crew decide to bail out and they were shot down by the German infantry. McMahon and three of his crew were killed and once more, I'm going to be Trooper John Buchanan. The second tank, he tried to go past him. He went in the ditch on the right-hand side. He was under fire too. The third tank couldn't get through. I think he panicked and he went in the ditch. Three tanks and ours was the fourth one. They were going at speed. We were doing about 30 miles per hour. I got hit. I thought it was a bazooka hit. There was a bang, a flash, a bang and dust. It's funny where dust comes from when you get hit. That's where I thought that was the end of me. Later on, I found we had hit Bully's tank. His tail was hanging over the road. We'd hit it, probably knocked it back into the ditch and we carried on. A scotch mist had come down and you couldn't see. You could only see the height of the tank, six feet. I was dead scared because I was now the first tank. And at this point, we'll take a short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. Now... Behind Scott Brownlee's fore troop was the squadron headquarters led by Major Pinky Hutchison. 
He reviewed the situation, and as an experienced officer, he adapted his plans to the situation. And this is what he says. When Bully got just beyond this dog leg, he got hit. So this is oh, there's lots to repeat, because these are all seeing the same thing, their perspective. That's what I love about oral history. You get everyone's different perspective. He pulled his tank off the road so that it didn't block the road. The next tank got knocked out too. That's Sergeant McMahon. He didn't block the road either. There were just two tanks in Bully's Street. Well, we've heard there were three. There you go. This is what oral history is all about. Steel Brownie then found himself in the lead. He went on flat out. He got hit by a bazooka, not penetrated. The tracks were damaged, but it didn't prevent him from getting on. He got through into the village. Then I was immediately behind him. We had to then do Bully's job and go straight through the village, which we did. I hurled hand grenades. Tom Dines was feeding me hand grenades. I was bunging them out of the top. We were firing machine guns, spraying them around, helped to keep people's heads down. The Germans were for the most part between the canal and the village, more than in the village itself, because we got through and out the other side without difficulty, once we got past where the German infantry were dug in. Bully was right in amongst them. He defended himself as nobly as he could in his tank, trying to use his pistol against them, and he was killed. Those killed and wounded were the crew of those two tanks. That's the first two tanks. So circling round a bit, but I hope you're getting the picture of different perspectives of all these people who are involved in the same thing. Now, as, as we mentioned, still Brownish Sherman was now in point position, exactly where he liked to be, careering through the streets of Aston. And once more, you're going to tell us what uh, William Steel Brownlee says. There were enf- enemy infantry all over the place, so I kept the guns firing and threw grenades out the turret at random. I never went to a- into action closed down because the periscopes were inadequate. And the only way to know where you were and what was going on was to put your head up over the cupola ring. It was the only way to judge what to do next rather than blunder about. There, there was some protection from the two raised cupola lids, but on occasions like this, the trick was to duck up and down, taking a look, then shouting something down the intercom, taking another look, and so on. We were issued with steel helmets, but I, for one, never wore one as it cramped movement. Now, his gunner's a bit worried, to say the least. Uh, what does Trooper John Buchanan say? We went through this village waiting for an anti-tank gun. I had my gun. The first thing I was going to do was blow the church steeple off because that's where you get snipers. But I couldn't see it was that foggy. It was cobbled roads and the driver turned left and went straight up this street where we should have gone. When we got to our position, the tank ran into the ditch and that was it. The tank truck came off. We were stuck. God, I said, here we are. Well, there they are, <laughs> and they, they can't move. Uh, but just by chance, they're actually in the right place to continue playing an active role in, 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 the, in the, the battle. They become almost a static machine gun post and, 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 uh, and gun position, uh, almost as if it was planned. And uh, John Buchanan t- goes on to say this. In front of us, the road led into this wood. So that gun of mine stayed on that wood. It made sure any enemy coming were going to get it. Our idea was to stop any reinforcements reaching the Germans, so we were in the right position. It was an orchard. When you're in a tank, you don't know what's behind you. It wasn't until later in the evening I found a Bren carrier and two other tanks had followed us. We were safe enough. I thought we were all on our own. I turned the gun round, searching the area, and I saw these Germans, 200 of them, marching across the fields from the canal. They were going to the bridgehead to relieve or help. I say to Brownlee, look there, he says, Right, we'll give them an air burst. Bounce it right in front of them. The shell, it was a perfect air burst. You've never seen anything like it. One shell, it bounced above their heads and every one of them collapsed. 200, all wounded or dead. 
Those who could stand on their feet dived into the hedges. One shell and that was it. I saved the British government a lot of money there. Well, there, there may be some exaggeration in numbers, but what a story that is. However, is everything as efficient as that? Do, do they, they carry out everything as brilliantly and wonderfully as that? Not quite, because the next story is one of my favourites. Uh, and this is also by John Buchanan. Tell us of it. the next, what, what happened next? Besides this wood was a hut. There was a lot of flattering going on in the hut. I say to Brownlee, there's somebody in that hut. Well, he says, brass it up. I've got my machine gun onto it. I discovered it was a fucking hen house. <laughs> you have to laugh or cry, Gary. <laughs> uh, now, behind A Squadron, remember A Squadron in the lead? We've got B Squadron and the King's Shropshire Light Infantry Infantry. They'd arrived in Aston and, and they get a firm grip on the village or, uh, and on the situation, if you like. Uh, and that, that, that is really the end of that incident. Uh, but I think that's a wonderful bit of oral history of those accounts linking together. And also the tragedy of Don... Don Bully, who that human touch of the songs he liked to sing, and then suddenly he's dead. Um, so what happens next? Well, next day, the 23rd Hussars took up the advance, pressing on down the road to capture Duerne. It's at times like this, I look at the name 23rd Hussars and think, how easy that was to pronounce. <laughs> yes. The 2nd, 5th and 4th Royal Yeomanry remained in Aston, where they passed under the command of 159th Brigade for the next phase of operations. Now, although the, the lads themselves wouldn't realise this at the time, but by, by the 21st of September, uh, the, the Arnhem operations failed. Uh, it's always called a bridge too far, uh, but it, it's really just, as we said, over-optimistic planning and determined German resistance. And it wasn't the first time that Montgomery had made this mistake. He did exactly the same with Malati Bridge and Primasola uh, Bridge in... Um, uh, Sicily, where I've just You've been. You've just been. I, I wonder have. why that came he, to mind. He did exactly the same thing there. There you go. A welcome brief rest over the next few days of September followed, spent at the village of St. Antonis. Ooh. They then re- withdrawn for a proper rest at Handel, uh, which is 10 miles further back to the west. Uh, and the American 7th Armour Division takes over the front line along the Mars or the Meuse. Uh, yeah, there now, uh, th- at this time, there's some changes. And it's, it's good news. To, th- there is a reward for merit in life. Yeah, it's at this time that still Brownie had a well-deserved promotion to captain now as it it meant he was moved away from his beloved four troops to the headquarters troop of a squadron this is what captain William Steel Brownlee says Colonel Alec came round just before the gin ran out I had mixed feelings (laughs) age 20 I think these ages are amazing age 20 I'd only recently got my second pip. Maybe the third was for services rendered after Aston. The colonel had congratulated me for going on through the mass of burning vehicles and saving the day. On the other hand, it was dead man's shoes. We had so many casualties. And it meant losing my troop, his beloved four troop, as you said, Gary. I would be third in command of the squadron with only one tank and a bit of dog's body work. So be it. Uh, acceptance of what it, you know, you do what you're told as a soldier, but he'd, I think he'd rather stay with his troop and, and, and had f- his four tanks rather than just be in his own anyway. Now, he wasn't the only one that was rewarded. Well, because another one at, of our heroes. At the same time, Roy Valance was promoted to sergeant. That's another well deserved promotion. Um, now, at this point, there's one fairly humor, humorous uh, incident uh, while they were at Dern. 
Um, it's a bit confused whether it's there or Bree, but it's a cracking story. And you're you're going to be Trooper Jeff Eason of the Recce Troop HQ Squadron, and he tells us just a slightly amusing story that we like a bit of laughter when we're not crying. We thought we were the first unit to put a shell into German territory. We were on a big farm with a rather grand-looking farmhouse with all the front covered in little square windows. A very smart-looking place, a very prosperous-looking place. With us, we'd got a Firefly, a Sherman tank with a 17-pounder gun, which was rather upmarket, better than the 75mm that most had got. Somebody said, you know, if we ran that up a bank, maximum elevation, I reckon it would reach about 11 miles. So they did a bit on the back of an envelope, so to speak, and said, yeah, we could do that. We did this, ran this tank up a bank, maximum elevation, told the civvies to cover their ears and take cover. We were going to fire this shell into Germany. When the shell had been fired, we slunk away with our towels between our legs because every window in this farmhouse had disappeared. Every one of them blown out, clean as a whistle. We crept away. Oh dear, oh dear. Probably still putting the windows back. I like that. Oh, so after a respite, after that respite on seventh of October, the second fifty-four fires moved back towards the front, supporting uh, in support of one five-nine brigade back to the Saint Antonis section uh, sector. Rather, now the defeat at Arnhem, and it was a defeat, British glorious defeat, but one of our mo- more glorious defeats. Uh, it left a stalemate situation with the British facing a narrow German bridgehead west of the Mars River that ran north, uh, ran to, into, from the north of Belgium across to the southeast of the Netherlands. That's uh, all a bit garbled to me. You'll it? put a map up. No, I bloody won't. <laughs> they can look at it. They can look at what on the uh, internet. Now, at first, the second five and five, fourth, uh, second five and four fire yeomanry, could have chosen any unit, were just helping hold the line, sending out daily troop patrols towards uh, forward to Boxmere and the neighbouring village of Sambeek. Well, then they moved forward to the Overloon area to support ongoing operations by the 3rd Division, uh, who'd been trying to capture Ven Ray and eradicate a German pocket there. That was the Ven Ray pocket. Now, on the 15th of October, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry and the 4th KSLI made an attack through a wooded area towards the railway line at Schmacht with the intention of distracting attention and drawing German reserves from the main focus of the attack at Venray. Now, I looked at Schmacht and I thought it would be great if it was near a place called Arse, but it isn't, unfortunately. Now, here... John Thorpe came to the end of his time with the regiment, and uh, you're going to relay what Trooper John Thorpe of Four Troop C Squadron says. Every day came nearer to the fact that I should die or be seriously wounded. I accepted it. There was no getting away from it. There was nothing I could do about it. In fact, it would be a relief to end it all. This day is different. I feel this is my last day. I'm really morose. They all tell me, go on with you. It's no different from any other time. But somehow, I know, as a matter of fact, I don't tell them, but I think I'm going to be killed. In the late afternoon, we began to be mortared. I turned round in my seat to shout to Cliff that it's getting too close and that he should close his hatch for a bit, or we should have one in the turret, and every one of us will have had it uh, when one lands on Robbie, <laughs> Robbie's periscope and blows it in. So a shell actually hits the periscope. Robbie and I are both wounded, and Robbie attempts to scramble over me to climb out through my hatch. But I try to reassure him and reassure him and hold him in. 
Robbie's ears are bleeding. Besides facial cuts, I, I was wearing my headset so, so that I avoided the concussion to my ears. But my face is open from my eye to my mouth and I cannot see with that eye. It's as if I'd been hit in the face with a red-hot cricket ball. The turret boys get us up in the turret one at a time and apply field dressings to both of us. So that, that's the end of his campaign. Sounds a nasty wound, that. Mm. Now, afterwards, the regiment were withdrawn back to Lager at St. Antonis. Back to their base, yep. On 17th of October, there's a real challenge. They're sent back to the Dern section, and they're then supposed to advance across marshy ground around Peel to launch an attack on the village of Voiland. Voiland, Voiland. On the 18th of October, Major Richard, Major Richard Leith led C Squadron into the attack. At first, they make good progress, but the German resistance stiffened towards the eastern end of the small village. Well, the Germans counterattack, and then B Squadron sent to join them uh, to to try and get, just get, get take the village. And Trooper Ron Forbes, that's you, uh, had a close escape from a German self-propelled gun. What do you say as Trooper Ron Forbes for Troop B Squadron? We had to run the gauntlet between two wooded areas. In doing that, I was fired on, and I had to turn a bit. In doing so, I slowed down enough for four or five hits with HE high explosives. There was one on the turret ring, which made a dent in it, but didn't penetrate. One on the periscope and two on the side. The fifth one hit the gun muzzle and glanced off. It's hard steel and it wouldn't penetrate that. There was a slight mark on the barrel. I was extremely lucky there. If the self-propelled gun had had armour-piercing shells, it would have been a different story. Where the first one hit at the side of the tank was practically where my head was being closed up. Having a fairly good close set of earphones, you got a sort of shock, but you couldn't say you got noise. If your ears were exposed, it would be quite a bang. I think I had nine lives, like a cat. Now, both both sides are having successes. There's some guns and tanks knocked out, but the, 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 neither side can break through. Uh, and in all, the, it's it's interesting to note the second 54 fast lose seven tanks that day. This is uh, this whole episode. You notice it's full of fighting. It's not a big battle like Goodwood or anything, It's but it's constant small, small, if you like, skirmishes. But they're not so small when you lose seven tanks, are they? What no. happens next? After lagering overnight in the village, the next day they moved back out to face the Germans, often at close range. The Germans shelled the area with increasing intensity. The fighting raged on for days with no real progress in a landscape that was gradually turned to rubble. Now, this, this, the, the, then there's a sort of whole period in these Peel marshes, as they're called, uh, and it becomes static fighting, uh, doesn't it? What's it like overall, would you say? Well, the terrain's fairly flat, but uh, uh, the weather is miserable, and that acts to wear away at their nerves. And this is what Trooper John Buchanan of Four Troops says. They put us in in the morning, brought us back at night, because we were no use at night, so we got plenty of rest. It was the mornings. It's like getting up in the morning and you don't feel like going to your work. You knew you had to go up and relieve the infantrymen who were holding the line. When you came back at night, there was always one man short, one tank short. Every night there was always one tank short. At the back of your mind is... Who's it going to be today? Now, on the 23rd of October, the, the second 4-5 Yemeni are partially retri- relieved. They, they pull back to Lager up with, with uh, B and C squadrons. Uh, but they're back and rest again at Dern again, where they've been before. Um, so so the, the, the regimental headquarters and A squadron are acting as brigade reserve a little further forward. At, uh, oh, I just... just, just Eiselstein. 
or Eselstein. So what's happening now? Uh, It's static, isn't it? Yeah, for the best part of the month, the 2nd, 5th and 4th file Yeomary, they'd remain in the area, with a duty squadron stationed forward in or near Verlin in case of emergency, while troop patrols scoured the area. The commander of Sea Squadron, Major Richard Leith, wrote a pithy description of that time, and this is what Major Richard Leith says. Few will forget our sojourn in the Peel country. Casting one's mind back, the pictures which appear are the never-ending rain and mud, the Bosch night patrols, the shells which landed in Argelstein with unfailing regularity, much too near our regimental headquarters and other billets for company, and the stonks on Dead Horse Corner. Now we got that name going. Um, then there were the standing patrols along the along the along the log road, keeping watch on the area to Saint Saint Hendricus and Hoove and Saint Helena Hoove, and the squadrons off sh- shoots on America, a small village in enemy-held territory. Why did you give me this one to to, to read, Gary? I don't know. Was it because of all these village names? That you well, know? I gave you the word America. Yeah. As to Voilin itself, as the weeks went by, it became more and more battle-weary, ultimately becoming wholly repulsive. In Voilin, livestock were constantly setting off tripwires in the night. The place was littered with rotting apples, dead horses and cattle. The enemy sent over mortars, which one couldn't hear going off or coming down, and overall there was an awful stench. While at Voilin, we had a number of casualties, including Lieutenant O.C. Davis killed. However, our stay in the Peel had its compensations. When not on, not in Violin as duty squadron, we lived well. It was curious how many turkeys, chickens and suckling pigs became injured by shellfire and were still fit for human consumption. Mm. Now, Lo- looting, we call that, Gary. Yes. Now, at Dern, the regiment spent the time on running uh, a a crew commander's course for all the recently joined officers and NCOs, utilising the chance to study what had happened actually on the former battlefields that surrounded their billets. They then move even further back to Helmand, where they've got some great news. Great news. The the What's going to happen? What happens? Well, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomary were to be the first to be equipped with the brand new Comet tanks. Uh, that's a British tank in contrast to the American Sherman they'd been used to. Now, uh, so the, the, while they're at rest, they're given some familiarisation training on the Cromwell tank, which bears some resemblance to the uh, the, the Comet. Um, it, 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 the Comet's much more up to date, but the, it has some points of similarity. So it, it's good familiarisation, isn't it? It's good. Uh, um, so what happens to the Shermans? Well, many of them are sent off to Brussels by tank transporters. Now, Captain Steele Brownlee seemed to have kept himself busy, as well as John Buchanan hints that he wasn't only interested in chasing Germans. And this is what Trooper John Buchanan said. Brownlee was all right. As long as he got scooting about at night in his armoured car or scout car, chasing up the girls, he was quite happy. He was a ladies' man. He made a lot of lady friends in Holland while we were there. Yes, <laughs> well, it's nice to see another side of because uh, of, remember he's a twenty what twenty year old man. Yeah, twenty year old. Now after a present couple of weeks, the regiment were delighted to hear they would be spending Christmas and New Year re-equipping with the Comet back in Belgium. Now they arrive at Eeps, we've heard of Eeps, haven't we? On the 14th of December, moving into, well, what were generally comfortable billets in the town. Because remember, it's been completely rebuilt from being 
reduced to rubble by the Germans in the uh, Great War. Um, so the the last of the Shermans and the Fireflies, they're, they're, they're given up. They go off to Brussels. No ceremony there. Um, and it looks, well, I think probably this is it for uh, the 54-fires. The war's almost over for them, I would imagine. What do you think? Uh, I think we're going to see, Pete. Oh, do you mean there's more fighting? I would think so. You mean the Germans don't give up in December 1944? No, the Second World War. Yeah, 1939 to 1944. No, it's not that, is it? No. Well, that was very interesting. I found that very, very moving in parts. And uh, I'd just like to say thank you for rushing back from Sicily so that we could do this podcast, albeit late. My pleasure, Gary. My pleasure. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?